Hello again and welcome. We are returning today to what Augustine was the first person to call the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6 and 7. At the beginning of this sermon, Jesus was encouraging his followers to be salt and light in the world. And he gave them eight beautiful attitudes, eight beatitudes, which would enable them to be salty and lightful in this world. And as we went through those Beatitudes, I think we all felt brought down to size. We all felt that we fall so far short of this standard of living which Jesus sets for us. And if you felt it as listeners to the talks, I felt it just as acutely. If you knew me well, you would be disappointed in me. If you knew me very well, you would be very disappointed. So I don't want you to think that I'm explaining the Sermon on the Mount from the moral high ground. Moreover, I'm seeking to explain the Sermon on the Mount to you very much from sea level, which is probably where you are too. Let me read to you from chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In describing the character of kingdom people in the Beatitudes, Jesus had made no mention of the law. But now he does. And when he says the law, he means the five books of Moses. We sometimes call these the Torah or the Pentateuch, which means five books. And in those five books, Jewish scholars have established there are 613 commandments of Moses. By the prophets, in verse 17, Jesus meant the other 34 books of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets was his way of saying the Old Testament. And he was saying, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fill it up full with new meaning. Now, if you were a new Christian and you read this passage to yourself, at first sight, you would think to yourself, gosh, I've now got to keep all these tiny laws, these over 600 laws of Moses. I'd better read uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and find out exactly what it is I'm supposed to be doing and what I'm not supposed to be doing. But the truth is, that's not what Christians do. And it never has been. The church has never felt itself obliged to follow all of these laws of Moses. Think of what it would mean if we did. We would all be Seventh-day Adventists, Exodus chapter 20. 
we would all feel entitled to keep slaves, each slave being kept for up to six years. Exodus 21. If you're an employer, then you will be obliged to pay your workers, not monthly or weekly, but you would have to pay your workers every day of the week that they worked for you. If we followed all the laws of Moses, you would never wear a shirt or a blouse which was made of polyester and of cotton. And in your gardens, you would not grow cabbages and lettuces in the same bed. And if you planted yourself an apple tree, you wouldn't eat the fruit from it in year one or in year two or in year three or in year four. You would wait until the fifth year before eating any fruit of something that you had planted. You can find all of these laws in Leviticus chapter 19. Gentlemen, you wouldn't trim your facial hair. And again, gentlemen, if your married brother died without having any children, you would have to marry his widow and raise up children in his name on his behalf, even though you are married already. You would never eat pork or shellfish or black pudding. I can remember watching a programme on the television about the Amish in the United States and the Amish take their Old Testaments and the laws of Moses very seriously indeed. And one very devout Amish man found mildew in his wooden house. He couldn't get rid of it. And therefore, in accordance with Leviticus chapter 14, he destroyed his house and he built another. Now, the question is, are we, as followers of Jesus, meant to be keeping all of these, what you might regard as being minor laws of Moses? After all, he said in verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, we don't take Jesus's words here literally, and I'll explain why. Jesus himself repealed the food laws. Jesus himself touched lepers, which he shouldn't have done. Jesus himself touched a coffin or a beer, a stretcher carrying a corpse, which he shouldn't have done. Jesus did not repel a woman who was suffering from hemorrhages, as he should have done according to the law. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, says, You are not under law, but under grace. In chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law. In chapter 13, love is the fulfilment of the law. In other words, the way the law is filled full of new meaning is by love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, I myself am not under the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. Galatians 3, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So here we are. On the one hand, Jesus is saying we have to keep all these little laws. And Paul is saying uh, we, we don't have to keep them at all. So what sense can we make of all this? Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean? Our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. We must be more obedient to God's law than they were. How, how can this be? The teachers were the people who copied the sacred writings and taught their meanings to others. And the Pharisees were the party in the Sanhedrin 
who put them into practice and sought to obey these laws to the minutest letter? Or did they? Was it the case that their obedience to the law was outward and legalistic and paid only lip service to the letter of the law, ignoring its spirit? Was their obedience outward and shallow, not inward and deep? Remember Samuel. He went to Jesse's house to choose one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. And he couldn't find the right son. And God spoke to Samuel and said, people look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. I was in conversation with a Muslim on one occasion. And I was talking to this Muslim about these words of God to Samuel. And the man turned on me and said, no, he said, Allah would never judge you for your thoughts. Allah will only judge you for your actions. Now, I don't know whether that is good Islamic theology or whether he'd got his own faith's understanding incorrect. But I do know the Pharisees would have liked that. The Pharisees would have said, God will judge us for our deeds. And therefore, we make sure that our deeds are obedient to God's law. But Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it with new meaning. I've come to make the law go deeper and wider. Jesus was going to get to the heart of the matter. Let me read to you something written by J. John, who, for the purposes of this story, decided to make up a new religion and he called it super faith. Let me make up an imaginary religion. Let's call it super faith. In our hypothetical super faith, let's imagine that believers must bow north three times at the start of the day. Straightforward, surely. But what happens when you don't know what direction north is? What happens if for medical reasons, you are unable to bow. How many degrees out are you allowed to be? Is that magnetic north or grid north? What happens to super faith explorers at the South Pole, where every direction is north? Or at the North Pole, where every direction is south? Oh, and what about super faith astronauts? In addition, Imagine that superfaith has strict dietary requirements, which include the rule that its followers must not eat lemons. Surely that's easy. Yes, but does that include lemonade or lemon cake? What about synthetic lemon flavoring? What about fruits related to lemons, such as limes? What about a slice of lemon in a drink? What about lemon scented washing up liquid? Do you see how it all spirals out of control? Very soon you end up needing some sort of specialised religious court to issue rulings on the least detail of existence and post a constantly evolving checklist what must and must not be done, eaten, drunk or touched. That's the end of J. John's short creation of a new religion see what has happened there. He created a religion of little rules which had to be kept and then you had a rule to explain a rule and you ended up with lists of rules 
to keep. There wasn't touching the heart. It was all adherence to an outward legalistic letter of the law. Jesus would sweep away legalistic rule keeping. Jesus would apply the law to the heart of the matter. Jesus would direct our minds from the act to the attitude. Jesus would direct our minds from the outward to the inner. Jesus would direct our minds from the letter to the spirit. And in this chapter, he took six examples. And we will look today at the first homicide. Let me read to you verses 21 to 26 of chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The ghost in Hamlet said, murder most foul, most foul, strange and unnatural. And you may be thinking to yourself, how can this commandment ever possibly apply to me? It only ever applied to murder. It never did apply to manslaughter or to war or to capital punishment. There were other laws of Moses to cover those occurrences. And the Pharisees and the teachers listening to Jesus would have folded their arms and said, huh, well, we're okay. We're okay. We're in the clear. He can't get us on this one. But Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Jesus goes to the nasty attitudes which lead to murder. And the nasty attitude that he homes in on is anger. It's angry people who murder. It's anger which is breaking the spirit of this law. And just as a murder will lead to a judgment in court by the Sanhedrin, so anger will lead you to be judged by God. There in verse 22, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Has anybody listening to me got a vicious temper? Has anybody listening to me got a spiteful tongue? The thought is father to the deed. And people who fly off into a rage always make a bad landing. Anger is only one letter removed from danger. And Jesus is warning us here about the sinfulness of the angry heart and the angry mind. And as we shall see, the angry tongue. Six times in the Old Testament, we are told the Lord, Yahweh, is slow to anger. James chapter 1 says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it is not easily angered. So murder is the ultimate destination of anger. But between anger and murder, there are other stations along the way. And station number one is bad mouthing. Jesus speaks of those who call others a racker or you fool. Now, racker means empty headed and it's translated as you good for nothing or you idiot. The idea is you're a bird brain, you're a nitwit, you're a cretin, you're a blockhead. Racker is an insult to the intelligence. And Jesus says, now, look, if you call a fellow Jew racker, you could end up in the Sanhedrin court. But if you call somebody a fool, you'll be in the danger of the fire of hell. This seems to be a word of a higher insult value than raka. It's an insult to a person's character. In the Greek, it's actually the word from which we get the word moron. And it's translated in various ways, worthless fool. Uh, if you curse him, if you say that someone is worthless, if you call someone stupid, the idea is that this person is a scoundrel. There's, there's not much good about this person at all. Now, some Christians, because of the Sermon on the Mount, will never use the word fool because Jesus said, don't say you fool. But of course, that's not what Jesus was meaning. Um, he was looking for the heart of the matter, not the outward words, but what's going on inside your mind. <clears throat> so it's very silly if a Christian says, I won't call that person a fool, but they are an idiot. No, you've missed the point altogether. Jesus himself uses this word in Matthew chapter 23. He says, you teachers of the law and Pharisees are blind guides, blind fools. No, Jesus isn't talking about the outward use of these words. He's talking about the inward attitude, which is leading you to insult people in this way. Anger can lead to destructive thoughts. Destructive thoughts lead to destructive names. And destructive names lead to destructive broodings and destructive broodings lead to destructive acts, murder. And if you express such anger, says Jesus, you are in danger of the fire of hell. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Now, you know, a thought, a look, a word can say, I wish you were dead. Jesus is saying destructive thoughts, destructive looks, destructive words will cause you to be answerable to God. So station number way on the way to murder is bad mouthing people. And brothers and sisters, some of us, including me, need to moderate our language about others. It is not consistent with loving our neighbour. Station number two on the way to murder is bad relationships. Jesus says, you've annoyed someone. You have made somebody angry with you. You have made somebody else want to call you a fool or a moron. Now, it doesn't matter whether this enmity is justified or not. Somehow you've managed this other person to feel anger in their hearts towards you. 
So says Jesus, before you get to the altar, be reconciled with that person. Before you come to worship, seek reconciliation with that person who's so angry with you. Before you take Holy Communion, seek peace with that person who is so out of sorts with you. If somebody is angry with you, if somebody is bad mouthing you, do something about it. So station number one was bad mouthing others. Station number two is about not being reconciled with somebody who is angry with you. Get reconciled. We then move on to station number three. This is about somebody who is on the way to court. In verse 24, it was about a relationship with your brother or sister. But verse 25 is about your relationship with an adversary. And Jesus says, on the way to court, be reconciled with your adversary. This relationship breakdown may not end up in your murder, but it may end up with you in court and in prison or in paying a fine. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you think your hands are clean because you've never resorted to homicide. I'm saying to you, your hearts are not clean because in your hearts you harbour angry thoughts inside. You use aggressive and destructive words of other people. You don't seek reconciliation with either your brothers or sisters or your enemies before you come to worship. You allow anger to be stored up in your heart and in their hearts. Now, Jesus is not saying that being angry is as bad as homicide. He's not saying that bad mouthing someone is as bad as murder. He's not saying that failing to be reconciled with others is as bad as a killing. What he is saying is that the commandment goes deeper deeper into your thought life. This commandment goes wider, wider than you ever imagined. Jesus is saying, I want you to control your anger. I want you not to be aggressive towards others. I want you not to fly off the handle at other people. I want you not to nurse destructive thoughts in your minds towards others. I want you to reconcile with others quickly, lest they have murderous thoughts towards you. I want you to be patient and kind and loving. I want you to love your neighbour as you love yourself. I want you to love your enemies, as we're going to see. And notice how all this teaching fits in with the Beatitudes. Jesus is saying, I want you to be meek so that you will inherit the earth. I want you to be merciful so that you will be shown mercy. I want you to be a peacemaker, so that you will be called the children of God. At the start of this talk, you may have thought to yourself, what on earth has the sixth commandment got to do with me? Do not murder has nothing to do with me. Jesus is saying the commandment do not murder has everything to do with you with your internal thought life, with the language that you use of others, with relationships with people that you've fallen out with, be they a brother or sister or 
an adversary. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this teaching brings us down to size with one almighty bump. Because Lord, we nurse in our hearts thoughts and emotions and attitudes and words which are unworthy of followers of Jesus Christ. And we pray for forgiveness. And we pray that we will never nurse within our hearts and our minds any attitude which would, in the long term, result in the murder of someone, either in action or in desire. May the mind of Christ, my Saviour, live in me from day to day, by his love and power, controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything, that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. Amen.